Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen, and I'm really looking forward to talking about what we're going to be exploring today. On this podcast, we've spent a lot of time talking about how to develop interpersonal resources of various kinds, uh, different ways of being with others in the world. And it's true that that's really essential and really important. A lot of our lives boil down to the time that we spend with other people and how positively or negatively those interactions go. But the truth is that there's only one person that you're going to be spending every minute of every day for the rest of your life with, and that's yourself. So on this episode, I wanted to explore the sweet and important territory of how to become a better friend to yourself and how to develop as good a relationship as possible with the various characters that inhabit your mind. So to help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm good. And this topic's personally meaningful to me Mm. because um, when I was younger, including into adulthood and midlife even, um, I had underlying feelings of inadequacy, low worth, uh, kind of a harsh driving attitude toward Mm. myself. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was like my being was a horse that I was the rider of (laughs) driving it all the time every day. Yeah. So this topic's personally important to me. Yeah. No, I feel extremely the same way. I think that a lot of people have very much that kind of relationship with themselves. And You know, speaking personally, it's a lot easier for me in many ways, I think, to criticize myself for the things that I do poorly rather than compliment myself for the things that I do well. And even when I compliment myself for the things that I do well, there can often be this feeling of, well, you only did that well because X. Hmm. And X is this thing that actually isn't me. It's this thing that's outside of my control on some level. So it's hard to take full credit mm. for some of the good things that I do. And, and this is something that's absolutely dated back to when I was a kid. And I think it's improved over time. But I do think that it's something that most people struggle with. Mm. Um, so I think I'll start just by asking you a question because you kind of teed it up there. How did you go about shifting that relationship with yourself? Well, I can give you a long answer. <laughs> and I'm working on shorter ones. <laughs> We like the paragraphs, but, you know, every once in a while. <laughs> Sentences suffice, sure, sure. right? Gosh, there were, there were just different aspects to it, yeah. you know? Uh, maybe I'll just tap some headlines. One was uh, starting to notice when others were actually caring or respectful or appreciative, mm. et cetera, toward me, and not ignoring it or brushing it aside, but taking in the good. That was a big one. Another was to be aware of and kind of tune into underlying good qualities of myself, not perfect or anything, but just, yeah, I tried hard. Or, yeah, I was willing to admit it when I made a mistake and put in some correction and move forward. You know, I wasn't such a horrible person Mm. deep down inside. I Mm -hmm. think that was another really important part of it. And then I think probably a third part of it was to appreciate that, you know, to get a little cosmic here, it's dumb to take life personally, mm. in a sense, that uh, we're part of this vast process. Just being here is incredible. And um, for me, I, I've slowly but surely, it's quite slowly sometimes, <laughs> um, have had a, a growing sense of just kind of, you know, being this particular wave in the ocean of reality for this time with a little spray and a little foam and maybe a dead fish or two (laughs) floating on the top (laughs) along with me. But, you know, here we are. And uh, to sort of lighten up 
uh, that process we often get caught up in of self-consciousness and, and staring at ourselves and trying to always improve ourselves, which mm. can fuel feelings of low self-worth. Yeah. So we're kind of starting by talking about self-criticism and self-worth, which mm -hmm. are sort of these two predominant characters. You drew them up as the idea of the harsh self-critic and then the kind of overwhelmed inner nurturer or inner protector yeah. is often how it's built up in a lot of Kinda people's like psyches. Godzilla, Bambi. Yeah, exactly. You know, this very <laughs> overmatched battle between the two of them. Uh, and you named a couple of quick ways that people can get into more of a sense of mm. developing that inner nurture. Mm. For starters, identifying opportunities to take in truly the moments that they are having good experiences. Yeah. And then you know, secondarily, maybe dropping into something more cosmic if that does it for you. Yeah. Um, and then also getting more of a sense of the part in the whole. I kind of heard that in what you were saying as well, where you were talking about, well, it doesn't really make sense for me to be this critical to myself because I'm just one cog in this grand machine on a certain level and we're all just kind of doing the best that we can. Do you have any other kind of pieces of advice for that process? Hmm. Well, I think it relates to one of the things that you said early on, and I'm kind of curious mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. how this is showing up for you. It's this feeling of being for yourself, mm -hmm. being a friend to yourself, which for me has both a, a tender, compassionate aspect to it, where you don't push away or deny or shame yourself for your own suffering. It also has a muscular aspect, and, and along with that, that you bring a kind of warmth to it. That's the compassionate aspect, self-compassion. The other aspect is um, muscular. Mm. It has a sense of moxie, sometimes with feelings of recognizing injustice or unfairness, kind of scruffy maybe. And it just says, you know, if this is the one life I have, I don't want it to suck completely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I want to do what I can, you know? And you know, in my case, there was an important turning point in my own life that I've mm. written about. Uh, when I was uh, quite young, barely six, I think, uh, where I'm essentially standing outside my family's home in mm -hmm. Illinois and looking back at this house with the light, yellow light kind of streaming through the windows uh, as dusk approached on the edge of a cornfield and just wistfully knowing that there was a certain amount of unhappiness in that home and it wasn't mine. I wasn't the cause of it. I had to deal with it. But it wasn't mine. And I was on my own, kind of. And then I looked out in the distant hills where there were lights coming on and as the sunset occurred. And I just had this feeling that I needed to make my way eventually mm. toward those other situations and those other people where I could find true and lasting happiness. But there was this feeling. I was for myself. I had to be there for myself. I didn't know all what to do. I was just a first grader, right? Mm, mm -hmm. But I, I knew I had to be on my own side. And I've tapped into that feeling and tried to grow it, frankly, through things that are more challenging like rock climbing or, or you just have to endure for the sake of others. And you gradually build up the muscle almost. That's kind of muscular of being for yourself. So that would be another thing. Yeah, I think that's a, for starters, a great piece of advice. Also, it's a very touching personal story. And man, I think that kind of as you were saying a second ago, to a certain extent for me, very similar, also mm. kind of different mm. uh, in the environment in which I was growing up in. I think it was really quite a lovely environment. So good job <laughs> on that. But it was one where there was a lot of complexity with other kids mm -hmm. uh, in my social environments and things like that. I had sort of a core group of friends that I felt really supported and held by. Uh, but then by kind of the broader social circumstance, I was not really getting 
a lot of positive social supplies. You were not one of the cool kids. I was not one of the cool kids. I mean, I think I remain not one of the cool kids, but at this point, I kind of wear it as a badge of honor. I think and, you've become kind of cool. Oh, us. well, thanks, Dad. I appreciate yeah. that. I mean, but you're always you, cool in the eyes of your parents. That's for sure. Well, no. It, well, and you're a dancer. You're sure. buff. You're into sports. <laughs> you know, you're like a walking ESPN yeah. commentator. Well, thank you. Thank you. And also, you're right. I mean, as a kid, uh, you were that kid in school who was deeply fair. Yeah. And when something was unfair, you wouldn't mm, do the mm-hmm. politically correct thing in fifth grade on the basketball court, but you would call it out. And that didn't win you a lot of friends. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't go so well with other uh, nine-year-olds. They were not really a fan of that behavior for yeah. a variety of perfectly yeah, reasonable yeah, yeah. reasons. But to kind of bring it back to what we're talking mm-hmm. about a little bit, I think that I had a lack of the experience of positive social supplies mm-hmm. from my external world. Yeah. And it's kind of one of the things that you've written about a lot, this idea of key resources, mm-hmm. where if you're somebody who is already getting a lot of something valuable, if you're getting a lot of an external social supply, then you're resourced in that area. Mm -hmm. But if you're somebody who has a real vulnerability to, let's say, uh, intimate love and appreciation from like one significant other or something like that, and you feel like that's a lack in your life, then just getting more friends telling you that you're a good friend is not really going to address that core underlying issue, even though it's a nice thing to have. And so I was certainly getting a lot of like internal familial supplies, Mm. but it really took until I was in college and really even post-college and even more recently over the last five-ish years or so, where I've really consistently had positive experiences related to other quote-unquote kids on the playground. Yeah, And it's sort of an interesting thing to think about in that fashion, yeah. to think about my current playgroup much as like in a developmental psych way, mm. almost this kind of curative proxy for the mm. kids on the playground that I struggled with so much. Yeah. I think you're naming an important point that for many people, their most kind of consequential social experiences mm. are with other kids. Mm. Parents certainly have a lot of influence. Parents have a duty to their kids. It's important to fulfill that duty as best you can, et cetera. And still, even for myself, a lot of my core wounds and core lacks, in other words, the, pre- the absence of the good can have as much wear and tear on us as mm. the presence of the bad. So for me, there was not that much presence of the bad with other kids. I think for you, Forrest, unfortunately, and it pains me as your father, that there was this fair amount of presence of bad with you. Mm. But for me, at least, it was a lot. I was just invisible. I would speak. Uh, I had this experience a lot as if I was watching others uh, through a glass wall and Mm. the sound was turned off on my side of the wall or a little bit like I would look through a window into a restaurant where people were laughing and chatting and touching each other and sharing bread together and I was on the outside, left out. And maybe other people might relate a little bit at least to that Yeah, I would imagine, totally. So both can matter. Mm-hmm. lacks and wounds together, and they certainly can matter when they happen with our peers. So one of the things that I'm seeing in this conversation and also that I wanted to talk about going into the room yeah. um, is this idea of balancing the, to say it a certain kind of way, the, the right amount of self-criticism. So right. I had behaviors as a kid. Mm-hmm that were adaptive, to use the term of psychology, where Mm -hmm. there was a circumstance that was present around me, and I developed these behaviors in response. 
Some of them were positively adaptive or useful traits, but others were quote-unquote maladaptive traits. They were negative responses, essentially, to the circumstances that I found myself in. And as my situation changed, the maladaptive traits stayed, because that's how psychology tends to work. What we learn tends to stay with us. Yeah, absolutely. And it sticks to the wallpaper of the mind and becomes the surroundings that you carry with yourself from environment to environment. So when I was a kid in school, the way that I felt fulfilled fundamentally, or I felt, you know, quote unquote, of value to maybe put it a different kind of way, was by demonstrating that I was smart. That was what I knew. I knew I was a quote unquote smart kid. I did pretty well in classes. I talked a lot in class. I did the whole thing often to uh, my own detriment and the detriment of the people around me because I would talk a lot and they wouldn't get to say anything and I would kind of go out of my way to kind of twist the knife with kids sometimes and the whole thing. As I aged out of these problematic environments, I still retained these problematic behaviors that then went on to cause me problems in other social environments. So I was kind of perpetuating my own cycle. So the question then, I guess operationally, is how do you balance clearly viewing yourself and going, okay, something happened to me as a kid. I developed this maladaptive behavior and now it would benefit me to adjust and work on this behavior, but without becoming excessively self-flagellating about it. Because that's also something that I've, I definitely, I mean, certainly earlier in my life and still to this day, struggle with to a certain extent. It's a weird analogy, mm-hmm. but if you think about life or, or Growing and healing is like playing tennis. So in tennis, there are only, you know, there are certain moves, right? Mm-hmm. Forehand, backhand, lob, whatever, smash, something, you know, different <laughs> stuff. Top Spike, spin, back spin. Sure. I played tennis a little Set. bit, okay. I, you know, but, you know, like different moves. They're just a limited number. Mm-hmm. In terms of the broad territory of clinical psychology, psychotherapy, counseling, coaching, healing, and growing, you are naming one of the fundamental moves in the game Mm. of healing and growth, which is exactly what you said, which is, okay, how can I recognize something that served me well then was maybe a solution to a problem then, which is now becoming a problem itself? And how do I disengage from that familiar but problematic old way of being and acquire a new way of being that's unfamiliar to me, maybe scary, maybe risky, in a way that's effective and doesn't also take on the collateral damage of shaming myself Mm -hmm. or pounding on myself for that old way of being. How do we actually do that? So you're absolutely naming. It's it's as if you walked onto the tennis court Mm -hmm. and said, "Uh, how do you do a forehand, right? Because that's one of the major moves, right? Fundamental question, really great. A few things, and I kind of wonder how it was for you about this particular one. One thing that's very important is to be able to observe it almost impersonally or to put it in the frame of, it's called sometimes, common humanity. Mm. It was normal, of course. When you think about the causes and conditions that were stacked up, uh, it's amazing that you're just not a total neurotic puddle on the floor. In a certain sense, of course, as a bright, deeply fair seven-year-old or nine-year-old, you would act those ways. There's a kind of a, of course about it. Or let's say you grow up in a home where there's a lot of anger flying around and you just learn to get off the battlefield, get off the radar. Of course, there would be a tendency to sort of shrink away from conflict 
or to be afraid of sticking your your head up because you might get it taken off. Of course, that would be the case. Mm. That's part one, I think. Normalizing it, accepting it, and then also bringing compassion to it because in those ways of being that we acquire is an an implicit suffering. Mm. There is pain in it. Um, I did kind of similar things. I wasn't so outspoken. I was less extroverted than you are. I was shyer. And that kind of added up over time. Increasingly, it's very painful self-consciousness. So I didn't say very much. But I felt very left out, very Mm. withdrawn. It wasn't like a tranquil uh, quietude, which now I'm very familiar with and enjoy thoroughly, but it was a painful withdrawal. Mm. So, you know, I relate to that too. And in that was pain. So in your MO of knowing or being the knower, let's say, there might have been an implicit subtle fear that if you're not the knower, what might happen? Or... Uh, if you didn't know everything, what might happen? Mm-hmm. So, uh, or if that mo was stripped away from you, mm-hmm. that armor or mask was stripped away from you, uh, you'd be just sort of hanging out, you know, bare ass naked mm-hmm. in the winds of life. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Another is to be rational about it. Mm-hmm. There's no replacement for seeing what you see and claiming what you know for yourself. It really served me to realize that my way of being was costing me. It was driving people away. Uh, If they weren't doing it to me, I was doing it. And I wanted to make a change. It's kind of one of these major wake-ups when you really get, you know, yep, it ain't working anymore. You just kind of take a look. Well, it does have benefits. And I need to face the price. Mm. And I need to explore a better way. That fundamental process, those three moves, acknowledging the benefits, appreciating the function, that you know, that way of being serves, but also recognizing the price, the price you're paying and the price for others, the price for them too. And then starting to move into a different way of being. That's the fundamental process. And then you just cultivate it over time with repetition. You try this new way. It works kind of. It's sort of ragged. Try it again. You're a little better at it. Try it again. It becomes increasingly natural. And try it again times 100. It starts becoming more and more your home base. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology 
and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. I think that for a lot of people, myself included, there's a real vulnerability in that just try it process, mm-hmm. you know? So it's kind of one thing to say, ah, just try a, try a new way of being on for yeah. size. And it's another one to get in, into the real practicality oh, of yeah. what does that mean for you psychoemotionally? Yeah. And this is where I want to kind of talk a little bit about self-concept and particularly attachment to self-concept. Yeah. Can we do this first. Yeah, go ahead. So I'm curious, how did you help yourself Mm. become more comfortable with, I'm going to use a certain kind of language here, Mm -hmm. not operating from your act? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Great way to put it. Yeah. 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 No, I mean. Act serves a function. Yeah. It's useful sometimes. No problem. No shame. Mm -hmm. That said, we can become trapped by our acts, like walking around in a suit of armor that was useful then, but now it's three sizes too small. Yeah. So how did you, I'm kind of curious, actually. How did I work with that? How did you become comfortable in like not knowing or being visibly Mm. dumb? Mm. I used to talk about it back in the day, we would have the cringe meter or the cringeometer. So the more that an experience makes you cringe as you face having it, often the greater the growth opportunity mm. there. So, you know, you, so how did you help yourself be okay with like being dumb or not knowing or sure. being wrong yeah. or having yeah. to draw on other ways of being valuable to others than being the one who knows? Yeah, sure. Well, it's a great question for starters. And for me speaking personally, being the one who knew was absolutely an element of it. And another element of it was approaching problems from a kind of head forward mindset, hmm. for lack of a better mm-hmm. way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And getting, I relate to it. Yeah, and getting very operational around task and you need to execute this task in a certain kind of way and this kind of way is the best kind of way. Yeah without necessarily having a respect and appreciation for the ways in which 
just because something is like, quote unquote, objectively superior, yeah. doesn't always make it better for all people. Yeah. Because we all have variation in how we approach problems and how we want to solve them and you know how we want to value our interpersonal relationships over solving something as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. And increasingly leaning into that, I think was a big part of it. And also a big part of helping myself do that was this kind of metaphor that stuck with me where we talked about it a little bit before, but it's this idea of finding optimal distance in your relationships with other people. And I think that for me, if you think about it like a spectrum where you're here and in the middle's right here and I'm over here, right? If I am all the way in toward you, mm. there are problems associated with mm. that. Um, I can be too identified with you. I can be too attached to your view of me. Mm. I can uh, feel the pain that you fa feel too strongly. Mm. I can get confused and conflicted about where the boundaries between you and me are. There are costs that are associated with it. There are also lovely things too, deep, profound intimacy, you know, whatever it might be. On the other hand, I can be all the way back over here. Mm -hmm. And there are good things about that. I can see really clearly what you're doing over there. I can appraise really objectively what your experience might be. And if we're having a conversation, the conversation can kind of live here. Yeah. And I can hold it outside of myself and hold it kind of in the space between us where I get to just like look at it. Yeah. And different people have different tasks. Some people's task is they're too close and they have to pull away. Some people's task is they're too far away and they have to kind of lean in. Mm. And that was my task. Mm. And it took me a long time to recognize that that was my task. Mm. And I think that an essential part of the whole process was recognition, which came slowly yeah. and not based on one specific practice that I did. Yeah, It came based on my circumstance. It came based on reading a lot of books on the subject. It came based on doing this podcast with you <laughs> to an extent. It came based on you know, interacting with my friends and having positive relationships with them and having moments mm. where I was the one who didn't know and I was in the scary situation and I was a little bit too close to them and the wheels didn't fall off the car. Yeah, that's right. And then as you're saying, mm. take those moments and really internalize them yeah. as well. Yeah. The wheels didn't fall off the car and indeed, this actually felt kind of good. Yeah. I'm still okay. Yeah. I'm, you know, to use your phrase, I'm still all right right now. Yeah. And I think that finding for yourself and for everyone listening, that task will be a little bit different on which side you err. And for me, it's about finding that line in the middle that I've referred to sometimes as like writing a surfboard, hmm. where you're kind of balancing that inward outward action that you're doing with somebody else. Mm. And for me, it's taking like one step further in, mm. in the interaction and in the relationship and the conversation mm. that I would normally be completely comfortable with. Yeah. And for other people, it's probably taking one step further out. For some, maybe it's about writing that line in a different way, whatever mm. it might be. So that was a big part of my personal process. That's great for us. And as your co-host, you're such a smart, <laughs> articulate dude. Oh, well, and thanks, as Dad. Your dad, you're a wonderful boy. <laughs> well, I always appreciate the positive reinforcement around my psychological growth journey from you. So thank you for that one. 
So maybe kind of ironically mm. in a conversation that I kind of walked into the room thinking that we would talk about, you know, quote unquote, being a good friend to yourself. Of course, we spend the first 20 minutes or whatever talking about how to like fix all of your problems that you're having, which is, you know, a very me approach to it. <laughs> um, and, but there's this other flip side of the coin, right? We all have strengths. Yep. We all have things that we're good at that we, or even that we're not good at that we like about ourselves. Mm. And just as we have to identify the things in our self that maybe we've held on to for too long, the fears we can let go of, the maladaptive behaviors that we can kind of release and let fall by the wayside, man, it's also really good to identify and have a real clear view of like, I'm really great at that. Hmm. And this is a part of my personality that I think is really lovely. Yeah. And to really kind of honor that in a positive way. and. I'm sure in 35 years or whatever it is of working with other people and maybe particularly of working with couples, mm -hmm. there have been a lot of moments where somebody felt really criticized for something that they thought was a good part of themselves or just like wasn't really particularly in touch with the elements of themselves that they really valued and appreciated. Yeah. Did you ever go through a process of helping somebody develop more of that like felt sense of the aspects of themselves that they liked? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did it with myself internally, mm. and I've definitely worked with people a lot about it. When you get on an airplane or you go see your doctor, you want him to be right. When the carpenter fixes your chair, you want them to do it correctly, so you appreciate that. But that tendency mm. to, be, to, to value rightness uh, and the, to have a laser-like focus on the gap between ideal and actual can become kind of oppressive to the children you're raising or the spouse you have or uh, even yourself. And so I had to really come to terms with the ways in which I could get kind of caught up with a certain righteousness mm -hmm. or a certain a case about others, uh, particularly, I have a long fuse, but if it gets to the end, I was kind of blown away sometimes by how swept away by the internalized fault finding mm. that I grew up with, that I incorporated into me, which then I was applying to others. And who knows whatever other factors were in play. So one is really appreciating that a little bit of criticism goes a long way. And it lands hard on other people. Just like uh, I've been in relationships where there was a permanent change by a friend of mine just sort of snapping at me critically. Mm. And I took a big step back and I stayed back forever after. So I think being aware of how we land on other people is really, really helpful, part one. Yeah, so for me, the point about all that when I'm working with a couple mm -hmm. uh, is to really help them appreciate how they might be landing hard on each other. Mm -hmm. And then on the other person, how then you take in that criticism. Yeah, gotcha. So that's kind of step one. Step two, in terms of helping people build up more of a sense of their own goodness, I think it's really helpful to kind of uh, give yourself the friend test. Mm. What I mean by that is imagine that you are, are like you over there. So you've got a, someone that's a friend who's like you. And they have many of the same qualities you have. They have the same tendencies, the same talents, the same skills the same good intentions, the same virtues, the same character strengths, and so forth, how would you regard that friend? Hmm. In justice and in fairness, 
you know, tapping into these fundamental standards of decency and benevolence toward all beings, including the one who wears your name tag, you regarded your friend with respect and with appreciation. And you would hold the foibles of your friend, which are obvious, but (laughs) they would be like, well, yeah, my friend, you know, he rattles on too much, or my friend kind of is a little uptight about this, or, oh, my friend is so weird about a little bit of dirt, or, oh, my friend, you know, drinks a little too much, or is way too into fantasy football, kind of to the point of annoying me, whatever. I see those qualities in my friend. It's cool. And then you realize, oh, wow, that's me. Mm -hmm. Well, why not bring Mm -hmm. that same caring and respect and sense of justice and decency to yourself that you would to a friend. Mm. So that's one way into it. Mm -hmm. Another is, as you said earlier, to really focus on building up what I've called your caring committee. It's this idea of sort of multiple sub-personalities in some sense or energies inside yourself that have different aspects of support. And for me in the caring committee, there's the part uh, that's sort of like the fairy godmother in Sleeping Beauty who just loves everything you do. Everything's great. And then there's another part in me. Used to be Mike Singletary, coach of the San Francisco 49ers back in the day. Now probably some new coaches for the 49ers who are firm, firm, direct, but they're not mean. They point out, okay, you messed up. Here's how to do it better next time. You can do it. Okay, give it a try. That's another element in your caring committee. And so through internalizing experiences of those things, such as really sweet nurturance or kind of firm but supportive coaching and encouragement or other aspects of the caring committee, you literally internalize them. You hardwire them into your being. Mm -hmm. They become a part of you over time, which increasingly offsets Godzilla, the inner critic, right? And it may not be that the inner critic gets any smaller. But increasingly, you stop feeding it, you stop allying with the critic, you stop joining with it. Uh, it's like a, an inner traitor, in a sense, inside you, and that reduces reinforcement from it. And mainly, you grow the caring committee. Mm-hmm. That's the second thing to do. And I think a third thing, really, is to uh, receive the love of others. Mm-hmm. It's kind of intimate that I think in a lot of ways existentially, including in a time of pandemic, life cracks all of us open, short or long. Sooner or later, we're all going to get cracked open one way or another. And I think it's really important in this life to be tenderhearted and to receive from others their own goodwill and to not be a kind of emotional anorexic about it where you don't take into yourself the valuing, the inclusion, the ordinary Mm -hmm. friendliness. Mm -hmm. It may be a little annoying sometimes how it's expressed, but genuine caring toward you. Slow down. Slow down and receive it into yourself. And finishing with my mom and also with other people, it really helped me to appreciate that even if the caring wasn't being expressed in the way I wanted in the moment, or it wasn't particularly obvious at all. Still, back in there, they really did care about me. Mm. And they really did wish me well, and, and they really did hold me in their heart. And those are really, really important things to let yourself take in. Mm. Well, that's a lovely reflection, and I think a great way to approach it. Um, I've often had the experience of 
having friends that I viewed as being very gifted in a variety of different areas, um, and they did not seem to have a strong perception for their own gifts. And framing that person as, oh, like how would I speak to myself as if they were, as if I were a friend, yeah. is I think a good way into it. And I think that there are also probably people performing that exercise who would say, well, I don't feel very friendly to myself, or uh, I don't know, when I do that, I'm not sure if I would want to be friends with that person. Mm, yeah. And a lot of various elements of that. And I think that, sure, then you can go through a realistic process of assessing whether or not you have those maladaptive behaviors that we were talking about and whether or not you should make some intervention. But man, I think that it's really tough to be purely motive and change oriented mm. around like maladaptive or negative behaviors if you aren't buoyed by a kind of fundamental sense of liking yourself and caring for yourself and having these good traits that you can also list along the way. So in the room, if somebody is talking to you and they say, you know, doctor, honestly, there's just not a lot about myself that I like very much. What would you say to that person? Well, I would be with them kind of like I'm just being here, just feeling the weight of it. And knowing, I think, that much of the time, me empathically experiencing the weight of that, how it is for them, is in some way helpful for them, mm -hmm. too. That I don't just hear the words, but I feel it. Like, wow, what it, what that's like for you to not like yourself or in fact be sort of disgusted with yourself mm -hmm. or to feel that you're somehow broken, damaged, tainted, stained, uh, including to the point that no one could possibly ever love you. That's a, that's a heavy weight to carry down the road of life. So just to feel that, that would be first definitely where to start. Second, I, I have to say that I, you know, because I'm much as, in effect, <laughs> I'll say it a kind of way, you know, much as lawyers, to some extent, are paid to detect threats of all kinds, mm, you know, mm -hmm. out there, it's good. Therapists are paid to detect neuroticism in some general <laughs> sense. <laughs> sure, yeah. So here's someone who says, you know, I really uh, don't like anything about myself or much of anything at all. And I, internally, I'm asking myself, yeah. sometimes I'm externally asking the client, well, hmm. What function does that serve for you to mm. have that stance? Mm -hmm. And maybe you acquired that stance a long time ago because it was adaptive. Maybe as long as you seemed to not like yourself, others would be sympathetic and reassuring and, and you wouldn't have to carry that burden yourself of reassuring yourself from the inside out, soothing yourself from the inside out. Or maybe if you looked like you didn't like yourself and you just felt very meek and small, Others would be less likely to attack you mm. in one way or another. Maybe it served its purpose then. These days, though, why are you still doing it? And also, these days, is there perhaps any kind of secondary gain in it? That's the term that's used. Mm. Yeah, which, for example, might be the person over there says, oh, man, I suck. I just am no good. Pause, you know. Uh, and then it draws other people into reassuring, oh, you're fine, you're good, you're wonderful, mm -hmm. which then creates sometimes a cycle of the first person saying, yes, but, yes, mm -hmm. but, which is a setup for give me more reassurance or to make a, to have a form of relationship that involves a kind of clinging complaint, reproach. 
you know, I, you just never reassure me the right way. Can't mm. you reassure me the right way? It's, you know, I feel bad and you never reassure me the right way. And then on and on and on it goes. So I'm not trying to be reductionistic, but I'm trying to be real about the kind of appropriate clinical thinking that can occur. So I'm wondering about that. And maybe uh, either there's no secondary gain or there's no ways in which this is just a relic today of uh, an adaptive coping response that was acquired in childhood. It could be depressive in nature. It could be a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. It could really literally be th the result of abuse or mm -hmm. trauma, totally. molestation, uh, uh, or just life experiences or, or a lack of support and reassurance from other people. You know, growing up in foster care, bouncing around different schools, uh, family systems, uh, having a sibling who has high needs, and you're just told mm. to push mm -hmm. to the side and quit being so demanding. Don't you know that your sister has a disability or fill in the blank? So whatever the reason is. So then I'm dealing with it. Then I get very interested in, okay, I got it. Uh, are you on your own side about that? What do you want to do about it? Mm -hmm. What's your relationship, you the client, say, you the person, what's your relationship to those longstanding feelings of inadequacy, worthlessness, the old term, and inferiority complex? What's your relationship to it? Can you step back from it or do you just agree with it? Mm -hmm. Right? And are you interested in healing it and doing something about it? You know the old line, right? How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb has to want to change. That's one of my favorite lines. Yeah, yeah, so moving, just like where you started, Forrest, can you be a friend to yourself about not being a good friend to yourself? Mm, mm -hmm. And that's everything because you're changing the frame. You're, and, and to really take it out, it might sound silly, but it actually works. Let's suppose a person is not a friend of themselves. Mm -hmm. Then one of my moves in the ten tennis game of therapy yeah, sure. is to go to, okay, can you be a friend to yourself about not being a friend to yourself? In mm -hmm. other words, can we, can we work together over time, grounded in neuroplasticity in the brain, hardwiring these new ways of being into your own body? Okay, can we work with that? And then they say, no, mm. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm depressive, I'm just slumpy, maybe I'm afraid of mm. not being hard on myself. It's been this way for too long. I'm yeah. too fixed in my nature. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I want you, doctor, to just fix me. Can't you give me a pill? Don't you have magic? you got a PhD. <laughs> I'm paying you a lot of money. <laughs> Whatever. You know, it can get a little weird in therapy, yeah, you know, sure. covertly sometimes, yeah. not always covertly, sometimes quite overtly. In any case, then here's the move. You're not a friend to yourself. Okay. Can you be a friend to yourself about not being a friend to yourself? Nah. All right, next move is, can you be a friend to yourself about not being a friend to yourself, about not being a friend to yourself? <laughs> it's, like, it's like Russian nesting yeah, dolls. Yeah, Russian nesting dolls. That's, right, that's, right, that's right. And at some point, it's weird, but it kind of is like, trips the mind. I, I get it. I mean, it, it sounds, it, on the one hand, it sounds kind of reductive and silly. Yeah. And on the other hand, I think that there's there's a difference on on some level between feeling suffering around what you aren't and moving even slightly toward an active stance of saying, you know, I have all this suffering around what I'm not 
and I'm just going to be okay with that. Even yeah. just that movement. Even yeah. just that movement of like, yeah, I'm just going to accept that it sucks. Yeah. You know, that has a certain, as you've talked about sometimes in the past with the difference between anger and sadness. Yeah. How you'd prefer to work with somebody clinically who's angry rather yeah. than somebody who's sad mm -hmm. because anger has a motiveness to it. Mm -hmm. It has a volatility. It mm -hmm. can move. Yeah. Whereas a lot of what we're talking about here is we're talking about an entrenched view of self that is in its deep way, like fundamentally kind of sad and kind of down and yeah. kind of just stuck. Right. Slump. Yeah. Mm. So even just kind of getting that initial mm -hmm. little bit of movement mm -hmm. can be a really helpful benefit for people. Yeah. And I want to underline something you said really mm -hmm. wisely, which kind of balances my tendencies to be Mr. Fix-It, which yeah. is under the heading of the person in effect says, yes, I, I'm here for a reason, doctor, right? They don't call me doctor usually. I'm Rick, but Rick, anyway, okay, sure. Um, I'm here for a reason. Yeah, I don't want to feel this way. One way to begin is in terms of shifting your relationship to it. Can you move initially into a stance of acceptance? Mm. Of instead of fighting with or resisting or getting caught up in rounds and rounds of yes but loops inside your own mind, where you try to talk yourself out of feeling like a bad person. Instead of doing that, can you just step back? And holding it in mindful, spacious awareness, accept that you feel like a bad person. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting when you go there. And there's a lot of great therapies that are being developed around this territory. For example, um, Steve Hayes, Stephen Hayes, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy mm -hmm. with the acronym ACT. Uh, or P Professor Paul Gilbert's work on um, compassion-focused therapy. We've interviewed Paul uh, ourselves for the podcast brilliant, wonderful guy, order of the British Empire, uh, for good reason that he's been granted. So uh, that stance of acceptance is a wonderful move, especially if a person is pretty de-energized, deflated, depressive, they don't have much juice for this, but minimally they can be with feeling like a bad person mm -hmm. rather than identifying with being a bad person. Mm -hmm. And that move where you witness it, maybe even with some curiosity or with acceptance, like, oh, oh, it hurts that I feel like a bad person. Oh, I can bring compassion to the fact that I feel like a bad person. Oh, I can normalize. Of course, I feel like a bad person, given everything that happened or what was missing in my life. Oh, that movement into acceptance is a very, very, very important stance. It's where we begin. It's often where we need to hang out a lot. It's often where we need to return. If our more active efforts don't have traction, come back to that acceptance. But it's not where we should end. Mm. I mean, I want to mm -hmm. just really say that. Uh, if you're among those few people who can suddenly start feeling in a normal range, like a really good person, by accepting the fact and just accepting the fact that you feel like a bad person, please send me an email because <laughs> I'm really interested in your story. Usually that's not enough. Yeah. Usually we need to find our ways in adulthood mm. to internalize the supplies, the social supplies. To some extent, they were crucially missing in childhood and also in adulthood help ourselves uh, recognize our own goodness mm. again and again and again um, as we move out of feeling like a bad person and increasingly more like a good person. Mm. I think that's great. Well, I want to ask you a question, if it's okay. related to this. So, Great. Far as, yeah. so in your journey, 
to deal with underlying feelings of being lonely and left out and maybe unwanted by the other kids, perhaps covered over with classically, sure. you know, a persona or act of assurance and knowing, okay? As you work through your own process of gradually softening and relaxing the act and tolerating and feeling the painful old feelings mm -hmm. of inadequacy or less than us, social shame, et cetera, okay? And as you gradually did your own process of feeling uh, a genuine sense of self-worth that's kind of bone deep and, and you know, runs through all the levels, as you did that, did you become arrogant and conceited, narcissistic jerk? I think I became less of one. I think that's true. And yeah. I think that's a very important point mm. for people to track, that actually, as you release over time feelings of inadequacy and shame, mm -hmm. and you gradually center increasingly in feelings of confidence and worth and feeling like a good person, people usually become less conceited, arrogant, and possessive. Yeah, no, I think it's totally true. And it speaks to one of the kind of common critiques, which I think is really poorly put together, to be honest, of this kind of work, which is that like, oh, if you just think about yourself as a good person all the time, won't you be a pain to be around? Or yeah. won't you be a narcissist yeah. or whatever? It's no, no. As we've gone into very clearly in previous episodes, we had um, a great conversation with Dr. Romani about narcissism. It's still one of my favorite episodes. And narcissism is a maladaptive behavior. Yeah, It is not because you feel happy and fulfilled and like a good person. It's a pathology. And like, yeah, and like your world's going great. Narcissism is a developed pathology that's based on not feeling any of those things at bottom. And so you create all of these behaviors externally to cover over the fact that you don't feel any of those things. Like truly feeling full and good and filled up by the world and all of that does not generally turn, turn people into jerks. Yeah. Yeah, so and I, th I think it's a great and useful point. I like the saying from Suzuki Roshi, the Zen mm. master, you're perfect as you are, and you could use some improvement. <laughs> Trust the Zen super monks and super priests to have a saying for everything, for sure. So I think what's underlying this whole conversation is this idea of how do you view the self? Mm. Is the self something that you're just stuck with? Mm. Or is the self something that can change and grow and develop over time? And I think that a lot of people have an extremely static view of their nature. Mm. They view the cake as pretty baked by the time that they hit insert age, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, pick an age for you. And I think that people who have that worldview often have a more challenging time being a good friend to themselves because part of being a good friend to yourself is about identifying the aspects of that self nature that as we've been talking about throughout this conversation kind of no longer serve you mm. or the ways in which you could add new elements of self in nature that would be really valuable and helpful to you right now. How to use a personal example, how I didn't have to be the brain guy. I could also be 
whatever you want, the heart guy to do the like the classic yeah. dichotomy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that didn't make me less the brain guy. It just meant I was also the heart guy, you know? So I, I just think that having that view you of You had the a self, backhand as well as a forehand. Exactly, yeah, well said. <laughs> so I, I think that that view of the self as more fluid is yeah. such a huge contributor to this process as a whole. And I just wanted to kind of get that in here at the end as a thought. Well, that's a great one. Yeah. You know, I am struck in what you say by these two aspects mm -hmm. of uh, what could be called self-worth. Mm -hmm. uh, one aspect is, fair, is cognitive. It's self-concept, self-esteem. How do you regard yourself? What are the standards you hold to your, for yourself? How well are you meeting those standards? There's that aspect. But there's also a very important related aspect, which is sort of like, what does it feel like to be you? Do you feel confident? Do you feel able uh, when you look at the next uh, situation facing you, is there a sense of just being overwhelmed and despairing and, oh, I'll never be able to deal with that? Or is there a sense of, you know, I, I can probably function. I'm resourceful. I can make the most of it. Growth mindset. I can learn even if I don't know enough today, even if I make mistakes today. I'll learn from them and be a little wiser, a little stronger tomorrow. You know, is there that? In other words, self-worth really has two aspects to it a cognitive aspect and a more of a somatic, emotional aspect to it. And I think sometimes in the field of psychology and just in ordinary life, people can get caught up in valuing one or the other, mm. but both come together mm -hmm. and both give us opportunities to yeah. be more of a friend to ourselves and to heal over time. Yeah, I think great points and a lovely place to end this particular conversation. Oh, yeah. I totally enjoyed doing this with you, Dad. I yeah. thought it was a great chat. I'm sure that we're going to keep on touching on these topics, both in the form of dedicated episodes, and it's just going to kind of come up during our normal conversations yeah. because it is so woven into everything else in mental health. Can I name a funny kind of paradox yeah, challenge ahead. that totally. I was reflecting about as we were talking here, something I never thought of? There's a term called ego ideal. Mm. And uh, it's this idea of who do we aspire to be? And then how are we doing in terms of who we aspire to be? Hmm. And what's interesting is that it's a bit of a double-edged sword in that if your ego ideal seems to you to be something that is honorable, something that, to use a certain kind of language, ennobles you hmm. in both the pursuit of and the attainment of or the actualization of in your own life, on the one hand, a loftier, if you will, ego ideal can actually support your self-worth. On the other hand, mm -hmm. an ego ideal that's too lofty can lead to you feeling like you're falling short. Yeah, totally. So there are pitfalls on both sides. And uh, there are pitfalls in people not setting their the bar or aim as high as they really could without getting sucked into striving and comparing and feeling short. On the other hand, there are pitfalls in setting the bar too high. And I've just been reflecting about that, including for myself. You know, one mm. thing for myself that's true is that I'm, I'm glad I'm kind of a scruffy guy who keeps trying, <laughs> you know, on the one hand, uh, including in terms of the ultimate process of awakening, however we might experience that or describe it. On the one hand, on the other hand, I am vulnerable to feeling like I'm falling short because the aspiration is is fairly lofty. So we have to be careful about that. I have to be careful about that in particular. 
Yeah, I think that's wonderfully said. So thanks for taking the time to listen today. Uh, Before we close, I would love to remind you about a couple of quick things. Uh, First of all, Rick's new book, Neurodharma. It's now available for purchase. You'll be able to find a link to it in the description of today's episode. So look out for that. It's a great book. Also, I'd like to remind you about our Patreon account. If you go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, you will find our podcast on Patreon, as you might imagine from that URL. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. I create a bunch of content for it, uh, including these pretty elaborate expanded show notes for every episode we do. We post uh, some bonus episodes. We have a bonus Q&A with Rick and I once a month for patrons. A lot of different things. Check it out. And more importantly than anything else, we really do appreciate the support. Very much. Finally, if you've been enjoying the show, we would really appreciate it if you would tell a friend about it, subscribe through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. Again, it really does help us out. So thanks for listening.